Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Daf Shavua as we study Maseches Ksuvos Daf Ayin. Very exciting week as we get to finish a parak. But I have, and a part of today's shear, maybe a big part of today's shear, is still going to be relating to the parak that we have not yet completed, at least in uh, my recording. I want to say something, uh, you know, the statement that we have on the top of the Gemara is a statement that comes from the story of Ilfa. Ilfa is a very interesting personality. You know, if you ask somebody off the street, who's Ilfa? So they'll know Ilfa, somebody in the Gemara, an Amora, and I do think he's categorized as an Amora. I'm not an expert in everything about it, Ilfa. But you may remember, those of you that were with us in Masechus Tanis, when we studied many years ago, Dafa Shavu, I think that was uh, either the first or the second, I think we started with Rosh Hashanah, but either way, maybe the second Masechta that we did, I uh, believe I spent some time talking about Ilfa, or should have spoken about Ilfa. Ilfa and the Gemara Masechus Tanis is presented together with Rabbi Yochanan. They leave the base Medrash, take a break, which is nothing wrong, on the surface, and they take a nap and uh, near a bridge, and the way the story went, Rabbi Yochanan heard a malach saying that one of these guys is going to be the God of Ador. Now, Rabbi Yochanan assumed that Ilfa heard the story as well. And Ilfa did not hear the story. So Rabbi Yochanan goes back to the base Medrash. The implication of the Gemara is that Rabbi Yochanan was doing the right thing. Ilfa was doing the wrong thing. The question, of course, on the Gemara, and we discussed this, if not, I've discussed this uh, in uh, Drush at one point, is how can you blame Ilfa if he didn't hear what the Malach said? So some of the Achronim explain that Ilfa should have heard. You know, it's similar to Moshe Rabbeinu. There's a uh, Medrash that I never found, but I heard this Medrash quoted by Rabbi Wine, not Rabbi Avramon, Rabbi Barawine, that it says by Moshe Rabbeinu, that he turned and he saw that the bush was burning. There's a medrash that Rabbi Wine quoted that that bush was actually burning from the most, uh, from the days of creation. It was even waterproof through the marble. But Moshe Rabbeinu was the first one to stop and to look. So Ilfa could have heard what the malach was, but when he went to sleep, he wasn't going to sleep with that mindset. It's very interesting. You know that uh, the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, has a whole sefer. They actually just came out with a new edition. It's called the Magid Misharim. It's all about conversations that he had with the Malach while he was sleeping. It's pretty wild because uh, we generally are not going to learn halachas from such things. There may be one or two halachas that are found in the Shulchan Aruch from there. That would be a share in itself. Now, the Marsha, back in Akumara, says uh, a defense of Ilfa. It actually ties into our Gemara. Because in our Gemara, that's why I'm getting to this, our Gemara, where's Ilfa making a kind of radical statement? The basic statement is he's standing uh, on the top of a ship, you know, in a little dangerous area on a ship, which I'm going to have something to say about ships also, which is important to keep in mind whenever you see a ship mentioned in uh, Gemara. When you see Amarayim, especially Tanayim on ships, we'll come back to that in a minute. 
and he's doing this dare, you know, I'm going to be able to figure out, if anybody asks me, where a b'risa could be found in a Mishnah. What's happening over here, just from a, a quickly, I'll mention technical point. You know, b'risas, Rabbi Hudanasi didn't include the b'risas. They didn't have a strong, or at least for this common person, they weren't able to show the source in Torah Shabbat in the same strength as a Mishnah. Now, we know in a Gemara that a b'risa is very strong because we will ask a k'shayla from a b'risa. The way I understand it, it's not necessarily the the right approach, but we don't have things in, in Torah Shabbat Peh that come out of nowhere. There has to be some type of source in it. I'll just give you an example. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's a good example. It happens to be something that I'm teaching uh, in different shir these days in the Tzorba shir. So I spent a lot of time showing the Tzibor that what happens on Friday night, Lel Shabbos, with L'Chadodi, with the whole Kabbalah Shabbos, which is not found in the Rishonim, even the Ramah, the Darche Moshe, points out there's no Indian of saying Mizmar Sheli Shabbos. And uh, it's actually one of the reasons I pointed out why we daven in Ketet Torah, at least in the base Medrash, from the middle for uh, in the middle of the Amud, the middle of the Shul, we dive in uh, Kabbalah Shabbos and then we move up to Fumarev because there's no Chiyav of davening Mima Makim from the the lower point, which is why we daven generally from the front of the Shul uh, for Kabbalah Shabbos because it's an addition. Happens to be in the main Shul, we do the whole thing from the middle, but that's you're allowed to do that for. Uh, sound reasons, so people could hear. They're not necessarily going to hear as well from the front. That's the excuse, at least, that I give. If I would uh, change the minog, I'd have justification as well. So I try to show in the shear that this whole Kabbalah Shabbos thing, it's not new. It's not new. It's sourced. It's in a Gemara Mseches uh, Shabbos Dafkufya test. The Amorayim themselves went out to the fields, and they said Boikala, Boikala. And it was Tosefa Shabbos. They did a lot of this on Friday afternoon. As the Rambam explains in Hil, in uh, Hil Shabbos how they'd sit and wait for Shabbos to come. So the Achronim, these are early Achronim at the time of Yosef Cairo. It's actually part of his base medrash. The Arizal, and then you have the Shlomo Akabitz, you know, all more or less the same time period, they were just uh, putting together, kind of consolidating what was happening in the Gemara. And the Gemara was able to happen Friday afternoon. It's not possible in a very busy society to do all of that on a Friday afternoon, so it was kind of like a facsimile of it happens on Shabbos. Okay, that's technical, but it's kind of the same statement that Ilfa is making. Now, just going back to the ship, this may not be true with the Amrayim, but what's Ilfa doing on a ship? So first of all, the Marsha explains, which is obviously the correct approach, this is connected back to the Gemara Masechus Tanis. You're happy I'm recording this because you wouldn't want to miss this piece. The Gemara Masechus Tanis, if you stop there, it makes it look like... Uh, 
I say with full respect that Ilfa was a loser compared to Rabbi Yochanan and Chasr Shalom. We should think that way because he left the base medrash. The Masha explains, no, what you end up seeing is that Ilfa, he's a businessman. There's nothing wrong with being a businessman, but he's a businessman who's still seriously osake in Torah and growing in Torah. And we have such people, first of all, we have people listening to this year. You're involved in business, but you're also learning Torah. We have people who, to the extreme level, they're involved in business and they're involved in Torah. I know growing up in Kew Garden Hills, I'm not going to say the name, but uh, Rabbi Schoenfeld, who is my Rav, he would say the biggest Tamil Chacham in town was a certain man, and I knew the man very well, who he used to give a Devar Torah at Tashkama Minyan, the youngest of Kugarn Hills, every Shabbos. But during a week, he was a stockbroker. That was his main business. And he was a massive Tamil Chacham. He has Svarim. He actually has relatives in our shul. The Amate Ephraim, or Ephraim Margolius, if I believe, was not even. Uh, a Rav. They forced him into being a Rav. And you have this with many, Chai Adam as well. I think the Chai Adam was an accountant, if I recall correctly. So there's nothing wrong with being a Rav. But Ilfa becomes that model. And that's why he's standing there on the ship. Now, why is he doing a crazy thing on the ship? That's an interesting question. Um, what seems crazy, but it's his way of uh, showing at least from the Gemara's perspective, that here's a person who's totally uh, imbued with Talmud Torah, and he's going to ask, you know, big questions we're going to learn as far as Shechid uh, from the teaching of Ilfa, understanding the Brahsa together with the Mishnah. I want to point out something else, which probably is not what's happening in our Gemara. Many times we're going to find Gemaras of Tanayim on ships. The very famous Gemara Misecha Sukkah, you know, with uh, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is on a ship. We learn a halachas, a few halachas. We actually learn of Hilchasukah over there. There was only one lulav. We learn about Amenas uh, Lahaksir, Matan Amenas Lahaksir. You also learn about the sukkah the, in the wind, right? What are the natural wind conditions of a sukkah? What's happening over there is the Tanayim were after the Chorban by Ashani, 70 CE, according to our calculations, the Romans, they took a lot of Shvuyim, a lot of captives. That's why I'm mentioning it on this year. They took hostages, and they took them for very bad purposes. There were a few purposes why they used them, not just for labor. They also took them for, uh, for uh, Arroyas purposes, like we see today what's going on, unbelievable, in, uh, with Hamas, Yimach Shemam. And Rabbi Akiva was involved in redeeming them. It happens to be, nothing's a coincidence, for some reason, the other night I was looking at uh, Albania on Wikipedia. I don't know, someone came from Albania, I wanted to learn more about Albania, or something in the news, maybe you know. And it talks about the Jews in Albania, there's a long history of Jews in Albania. Even today, there's 40 Yidin in Albania. What the heck are they doing in Albania? I don't know if anybody's gone to Albania for Yeshiva Week. And it says, this is not you know Jewish source, it quotes from a secular history that Jews were taken as captives to Albania in 70 CE. 
unbelievable. Okay, where they were taken on these ships by the Romans to Albania in 70 CE. I don't think with the Roman, I I don't think with the Amorayim that's what's happening. Okay, I could be wrong. Maybe there were still people who were taken that they were searching for. But that's the, uh, give you a little bit of special Ilfa piece. Okay, I think the last thing I'm going to discuss today, and uh, Bezrat Hashem, next time we'll get into the new parak, is a very fascinating topic. At the end of the day, after the whole Ilfa story, and I have a lot more to say about Ilfa, someday Bezrat Hashem will give a whole share on Ilfa. And uh, he's pretty he's quoted pretty often. It's interesting. More than certain ta- Amorayim who only sat in the base measure. So there's a lot to say for Ilfa and business people. It's very often used to give chizik uh, to people. So we have the mitzvah l'kayim divrei ames. This is a big issue. In American law, I mentioned, I think, yesterday, because it relates to these issues, I spent some time when I was uh, doing a little bit of dabbling in law with statements that are made on the deathbed. Now, the deathbed itself is what's referred to in the Gemara Gid and other places as well as a shchiv meirah. That's what I said before. I naturally call this a shchiv meirah, even though what's very important, and Tosfos points this out, the Ritva and tons of Rishonim, that you actually have two different categories. You have shchiv meirah, those are statements that somebody's going to make on his deathbed, and then you have a mitzvah l'kayim It could be a person who's standing and he's not necessarily on his deathbed, but some time before he died, he made the statement. Um, so just in general, like in the secular world, it's true in the Jewish world as well, this is where a lot of inyanim come up. A lot of fights and families come up. If let's say there's a will, a written will, and then in the hospital, in the nursing home, maybe on hospice, the person who's uh, dying, Rahman Aslan, changes something, makes a statement. What's the impact? Sometimes this question comes up, again, this is halacha and in secular, we're not going to be able to settle it here. But I just want to tell you how crucial this little, little piece of Gemara with Ilfa. It's not the, the Ilfa is not the main point over here. It's the statement of Ilfa. Let's say you change the will. The will is changed close to a person's death. So there was a will for 30, 40 years. And then all of a sudden, uh, close to death, the will changes. These are major issues that come up. You know, there have even been situations where somebody has changed the will and gives the money to the uh, aid. I'm recording this year right before, uh, it happens to be Pashas uh, Kisisa, but in the news yesterday, I spoke about this in Shul, there was this woman, she left a billion dollars, she's still alive, but she's giving a billion dollars to a hospital, to Einstein Hospital, free tuition forever. It's, t- it's time to get your kid ready to go to Einstein. This actually came, she didn't even know about it. It was in the tzava of her husband. I mean, the husband didn't say to give it to Einstein, but the husband said, I have all this money. She didn't even realize, and you could do with it what you want. But you end up very often with these challenges. 
And unfortunately, I've had to deal with this. I'm not an expert in these halachas. These are chesh and mishpat halachas. I refer it out. But there's a will. We discussed yesterday. That's why it ties into the dunya. That on the deathbed, uh, a person could change and could maybe take away what's given to the yarshim or could make certain changes. And then people challenge it. In American law, they say it's unconscionable. Very often, you know, these people that trying to use the will as an instrument against somebody, some kid who they think didn't show him enough love. It's terrible. That's why I generally tell people, give away all your money while you're alive, because they're going to fight about it afterwards. Most families don't fight about it. And most families, as we spoke about yesterday, there's going to be equal distribution. Don't use your will as an opportunity. Now, sometimes in a will, there's uh, people leave metaltolin, and they say the candlesticks goes to this person, the engagement ring goes to this person. And even there, sometimes there's machlekes. But, okay, that's minimal. Cash is really the king where the big fights come up. So we end up with these uh, two different concepts. The, the interesting, I want to point out as well, which is the background here, which may have bothered you, Rashi actually deals with it, is what happens... If somebody says, uh, give my kid, you know, a shekel. A shekel is, uh, that's what they need every week. Then the reality is there's been inflation, so they need a sellout, which is two shekelim. You could wonder, how's that happening? How's that happening? What do you mean? Isn't there going to be Yerusha where everything goes to the, the kid? So even in a case where everything goes to the kid, the 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 mace and he could do this as a shchiv meira, which means literally he's on the deathbed. He could do it as argamara, where you have to be mekayim divrei mace. He's allowed to assign a third party, a third party. And in fact, Tosva says that when you assign a third party, that's the difference between shchiv meira and the mitzvah lasos lekayim divrei mace. Shchiv Meira is just a statement the guy says, and then you have to listen to it. But it's not it's not as formal as a mitzvah l'kayim divrei ames. Mitzvah l'kayim divrei ames, it could have been done beforehand, but they don't find out until after they died, until after the guy died, that this is the way he wanted things to be. There are other explanations as well, but I'm just going to go with that explanation. It's the simplest explanation. So this guy, as a fulfillment of mitzvah l'kayim divrei ames, you have to listen to him, which means it's true that at the end the money's going to go to the yarshim. But he doesn't want the yarshim to get all the money right away. You know, let's say it's a tremendous amount of money. You see these situations, a guy gets like, uh, wins the lottery. They don't know how to handle the money. So what the father is doing in this situation, he's actually helping the kids. That's at least, they may not think so because maybe they have some debts they want to pay off, and he's saying slow distribution. The, the, the Yerusha doesn't have to be all in one shot. It could be a slow distribution. I just wanted to end with a uh, Mitzvah L'Kayim Divri Ames story. There was a guy who, a uh, famous story with the Chavetz Chaim, where they were reading the will, and the, the kids were reading the will, and they were shocked to find out that they didn't get all the cash. 
this was actually a mitzvah kaim divriyameis situation. The the man left a certain amount of money to the it was he he left something to the chavetz chaim. And the way the story goes, everybody had to come to court to read the will to find out what's inside. It's how it works today, to to a certain extent. You know, there's a distribution, and you find out after the will who exactly gets. So as part of Mitzvah Kaim Divri Ames, halachically, this person didn't have to give everything to the kids. He gave Yerusha to the kids, but he also included the Chavetz Chaim. These kids weren't very into Torah. They're very upset. And they want to know, what's the Chavetz Chaim getting? So sure enough, they come to the courthouse. This is the Maisa. Whether it's true or not, this is uh, great stories they tell about the Chavetz Chaim with great lessons. They don't tell these stories about me. And sure enough, the man left says, as they read the will, you can imagine the judge reading it, all the money to the children and all my svarim to the Chavetz Chaim. And the Chavetz Chaim apparently said, and you have to take this with a grain of salt because the Chavetz Chaim would insult someone or the Chavetz Chaim thought, and somehow we know what he thought, but either way, it's a great message. The message was, what a mistake. You see, this father, he figured his kids have no shaykhahs to Svarim. The Chavetz Chaim has no shaykhahs to money. But the Chavetz Chaim needed the money. First of all, he was a poor man, relatively poor man, but he, he would have given away the money to Aniyim, to Yeshivas, and the kids needed the Svarim, because you need Svarim. You'll leave sometimes a safer to a child. I know a situation where someone left a tefillin to a grandchild. The grandchild hadn't worn tefillin in years, but he was connected to his grandfather. So the way the story goes is uh, the Chavetz Chaim said, what a fool, he probably didn't say it that way, but this man should have given me all his money, and he should have given his kids all of the svarim. That's what they needed, because apparently they had plenty of money. But at the end of the day, this is Mitzvah Kayim Divrei Ames, the Chavetz Chaim was not able to change it. That's the way it works. So again, I call this always Shchiv Meirah. Ilfa is reminding us that this is called Mitzvah Kayim Divrei Shneim. And enjoy, you should feel a great sense of success for finishing this parak. And we move on now to the next parak.